Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Last night, Pierre Polyev uh, staged a filibuster in the House of Commons, gave a speech for, I think, four hours, give or take. And by some accounts, uh, it was a pretty good speech, considering it was four hours long. I don't know how you make anything that interesting when you're going for four hours. But one of the recurring themes that he kept coming back to is that the budget that was going to be passed, that has now been passed, is going to drive Canada into a full-scale financial crisis. Now, here's the question. Is that merely a political statement? Because obviously it's the House of Commons. He is a political leader. There are going to be political things that are being said. Or is he correct that we are heading towards a full-scale financial crisis? Eric Cam is an associate professor and the director of the International Economics and Finance Undergraduate Program at Toronto Metropolitan University. He joins us now. Thank you for doing this today. No problem, Scott. Good to talk to you. You as well. So when you, well, I don't imagine that you stayed and watched all four hours of Pierre Polyev's speech yesterday, but when you saw the highlights or heard about them and you heard him say, this budget and other things the Liberals are doing are driving us to a full-scale financial crisis, is that hyperbolic politicizing, or do you think he has a point? Well, first of all, the only thing I do for four hours is watch a Miami Dolphins football game from start to finish. That's number one. Number two, yeah, it's exceptionally hyperbolic. And you've got to remember who you're talking to, because I'm kind of a glass-is-half-empty economist. I generally see pessimism, and I see lack of equilibrium, and I see mistakes. And I'm the kind of person who worries about these things, and Mr. Polyev is correct to say that he's not 100% sure what's going on right now, because a lot of economists are in the same boat. But to come out and say we're going to have a full-scale financial meltdown, financial blow-up, or whatever terms you want to use, there's no evidence of that. Number one, there's no macroeconomic indicators that say that's on the horizon. Um, he may be referring to the fact that the Bank of Canada just raised the basic interest rate again up to 4.75, and he doesn't agree with that. Well, I'll be honest, I didn't agree with it either, which we can get into as our chat goes on. But to say that there's anything right now that should that we should look at and say, oh my God, we're getting to the end of the pier, uh, I think is just trying to gather votes because nothing, nothing today, Scott, indicates this. One of the points that was raised uh, also for quite a period of time that I believe he was using to bolster this argument is that those who purchased homes, and apparently there were many of them back within the last three or four years when interest rates were very, very, very low, are going to be facing renewal in the next couple of years. And if interest rates, which went up today or yesterday, I guess, uh, continue to rise or stay at this level, there are going to be millions of Canadians who are going to be facing some kind of economic financial crisis when it comes to renegotiate their mortgages. Is that true? That part is true. Although millions and millions of people, again, sounds a little hyperbolic. Now, I haven't seen the exact numbers from CMHC. But yes, I mean, the reality is, is that I see people crying right now that they have a variable rate mortgage and some people have a fixed and they're, you know, the people in the fixed are doing better. That's only in the short run. In the long run, they, they have to renegotiate, too. And no, interest rates are not going to come back tumbling down to those really nice between 1% and 2% levels. So yes, in one market, the housing market, it's an important market, but it's one market. 
you will probably see recessive tendencies. But, you know, if we've learned anything since the, the pandemic, and I can put myself in this boat, this economy, this Canadian open economy is far more resilient than people thought. And I've gone on your show and the Roy Green show, and I've said the bottom is about ready to fall out. And you know what, Scott? It doesn't. And it doesn't because of what they tell you in first-year economics. As long as spending is strong, as long as CPI and GDP are trending upward, we're okay. And right now, those two things are trending upward. So I'm, I'm not one right now to want uh, to call any alarms. I'm going to keep an eye on the housing market. I'm going to keep an eye on the inflation levels. I'm going to keep an eye on the labor market because inflation hasn't really hit it yet, and it has to at some point. But to believe that all of these markets are all going to collapse at the same time because of a 0.25% increase in the mortgage rate is folly. One other thing then that I want to ask you about here, and that is if we go back uh, a couple of years, few years uh, back into COVID, we had questions being asked of the Prime Minister and of Tiff McAllen about interest rates. And at that time, they were at their lowest ever. And at that time, both those men, the, the, the head of the Bank of Canada and the Prime Minister, both said, look, interest rates are really, really low. We have nothing to worry about because they're not going up. They're going to be staying low. Well, they haven't stayed low. They've gone, they're still not at the place where they were on average, but they're way higher than they have been. So when they said we're fine because interest rates are not going up, now that they've gone up, does that mean they, things are not going to be fine? Or does that just mean, you know what, we're actually finding that we're capable of handling higher interest rates without catastrophe? Well, a little bit of both. But what it really does signal for you, as someone who likes to talk to me, is this is why I don't go into politics. Because you've got to say one thing on Monday, and sometimes you have to say another thing on Friday, and that leaves me very uneasy as an economist. They knew, I don't care what they tell you or me, they knew that interest rates could not stay at those low levels forever. Now, you know, you say, oh, well, after about a decade, it looks like they could. But they couldn't. They can't. Because the economy is cyclical, and everyone knew that one day there'd be inflationary pressure. Now, was it exacerbated and made much faster by the pandemic? Yes. So if they knew, if they knew during the pandemic, if they said during the pandemic, rates are not going to go up, then, well, frankly, then they were just stupid. And I don't want to believe that they were stupid. And let me tell you, Tiff Macklem is the opposite of stupid. So it's somewhere in the middle. I mean, I think that that was baloney to say that they're not going to go up. And I also think it's baloney to say because they've gone up to these levels, we're still lower than we've been historically. I mean, if you look at averages over the last 50 years, we're still lower. So is it good that rates have gone up this far this fast? No. Is it tragic and is it a sign of demise? No. See, you know what? Every once in a while we have you on here and, uh, and we leave feeling a little uncertain. Today you are the bluebird of happiness. You are the, the bearer of all optimism. Everything is great. Eric Cam, the, well, I was going to say Ryerson University, Toronto Metropolitan University's Mr. Optimism. Thanks for this. And can I pat myself on the back? Absolutely. I, appreci- I appreciated you introducing me as associate professor, but as of last week, I am now just professor. Wow. Well, you know what? Tell, make sure you tell the people at the university to update your, uh, your website and give you even a bigger headshot and bigger title name so we can get that right next time. <laughs> Congratulations. I Thank you very much, and please tell my wife that I'm a ray of sunshine. <laughs> I'll give her a call. I've never talked to her. We'll, we'll make that happen. I'll be the first call. Appreciate it. Eric, thank you for doing this. Eric Kane from Toronto Metropolitan University. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, a Ticats drought is not 64 years yet. Not even the Leafs is 64 yet, but it's getting there. 1999, the last year the Ticats won the Grey Cup, although you don't need me to remind you of that. You know that all too well. The longest drought in the CFL and people who are now finishing university have not been alive, have not been alive for a Ticats Grey Cup victory. They kick off tomorrow. The brand new season kicks off tomorrow. Is this the year that things end happily? Let's bring in Steve Foxcroft. He is a sports commentator and official. He does all kinds of stuff. Steve, how are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. And you just reminded me Uh that I've never seen the Ticats win the Grey Cup live. Well. Close. I was at Sky Dome with the Tony Champion catch. Then Ken Austin came down and Dave Ridgway beat us. Yep. That was the closest. In 1972, I was too young when Ian Sunter made it 13-10, kicking to the old players' scoreboard at the east end zone to win it. But I was just a kid playing outside with my brother Dave, uh, waiting for the streetlights to come on. Like Back then, it was a daytime game, too. Yep. So I've never seen it happen live. So let's hope this November... We can all see it live in Hamilton. Well, I think people at this point, uh, Steve, wouldn't care if it was seeing it live or if it was taking place in a space station on Mars. Just win the bloody thing because it's, it's, it's become, you know that things are difficult when, your team, when you start talking about a streak. When a team is known as much for the streak of not winning as anything else, you know the streak is long. It's like the Leafs with 67. It's just... Mm-hmm. It's just, it's time. It is, I, I don't know if this is going to be the year, although they look, they look on paper like this should be as good a chance as any, don't they? They sure do, and we're going to get a good litmus test right off the bat. We go yes. into the, you almost say the defending champs, but they lost, but Winnipeg. Then we get Toronto, who won it last year. So we're going to find out right away. And, you know, you said on paper. And you know what? still is weird to me on paper and even more so live, Bo Levi Mitchell as a Tiger Cat. Like, when he was in Calgary, they owned us for those years, and I hated him. And and to see him as a Tiger Cat, I'm still learning to, like, I love it, but I'm learning to deal with it because it's just different for me. But one of the things I think that's going to help him and us when I say us, Ticat fans, the offensive line. I think we're, we have depth. I think we're big and physical. And I think also one of the things that Bo Levi looked at to come here was, you better have an offensive line to protect me. Because I saw what happened to Dana. No wonder Dane Evans was never healthy. Yeah. I, I, I'll say this about, um, about Bo Levi Mitchell. I, I, I have no idea what Bo Levi Mitchell Hamilton fans are going to see because it's been a couple of years since he was Bo Levi Mitchell the way we remember him being. He had injuries and then he was taken out. He became a backup. But he'd better be good. And I think he can still be good. I really believe he can. But he has to be good. And the reason is I think that the Ticats brass and the coaching staff is going to be highly reluctant to replace him because he's Bo Levi Mitchell and he was the big signing and he's the the big ticket and you're going to give him the longest leash he can possibly have, which means 
man, if you're going to go, if he's going to take you down, he's probably still going to be in there. He's got to be good, but I think he, he has, can. He has to be good. I think he can. And I think he will also make Tommy Condell better as well because the offensive coordinator. Mazzoli, yeah. The offensive coordinator, Tommy Condell, because I think in the past with Mazzoli and Evans, they didn't have the clout to work and tell Tommy things. They were kind of maybe just going off of what he was doing. He was the coach. But with Bo Levi, I think him and Condell will work jointly, and it will be more like give and take from the offensive coordinator to the quarterback and vice versa. And I think that could help a lot. And I will say this. My brother, who I don't want to get in trouble for telling me this. I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyway. They, they go to the different teams and work some of the scrimmages and the practices and all that. And he's been around 25 years. And, and he's starting the league out. He, he, got, he has the opening game in a few hours out in Calgary, so he'll be the head ref for that. But what he said to me, and not getting him into trouble by saying this because he's being neutral, he said, Bo Levi is the real deal, and he can move the team. Yeah, and that's I'll, him in preseason or in training camp. If he's healthy and if he is back on his game, and and the other thing that I always wonder about and I don't have any reason to think this, really. Uh, but I always wonder if after a certain while, other teams finally figure you out. The guys get figured out. It might be quick or it might take a long time. Bo Levi Mitchell was good for so long that I'm thinking to myself, I don't think they just finally figured him out. But I do think that last year it looked like the Ticats offense had been figured out. So let's see if the Ticats offense can make enough adjustments with a new quarterback that the other teams don't have a good idea what's coming. And if that's the case, you know, as I say, I think on paper there is no team in the East, certainly, that looks like they should match up with the Ticats. They should win win the East going away, I think. And I thought that last year, too. So that's where it's frustrating, and I'm almost biting my lip. But I have to say I agree with you 100%. We should run away with the East. And, you know, the thing with Bo Levi, too, out in Calgary, and it happens with a lot of good teams in, in many sports, a lot of the leagues are set up to penalize the, uh, the good teams, right? Like, in a while, after a while, you start losing the pieces that go with the superstars because of salary cap reasons and, and other teams get attracted, free agency. You know, they do well with one team and they get... And that's what I think also happened to Bo Levi out in Calgary a bit. He had a lot of pieces around him, including Cornish, like the running game and all that. They were punishing. And the run sets up the pass, the pass sets up the run. But I think those pieces slowly aged, left with free agency, salary cap issues and all that. So I think he, he kind of wasn't playing with the same supporting cast as he was. And now the supporting cast here in Hamilton looks to be upgraded a bit and now slot him in at the quarterback position as the real deal. I agree with you. Well, and so let me throw one other thing at you here with the time we have left, which is, and this, I think I'm pointing to this as an optimistic thing. If it turns out not to be good, it flips 100%, which is maybe obvious, but here's the thing. They start in Winnipeg, which is, I would think, going to be still a really, really tough game. The week after, next week, next Sunday, the, June the 18th, they're in Toronto. Now, the thing about Toronto is every like three or four years, they emerge out of nowhere and win the Grey Cup. But the other years, they're usually not very good. 
And so we don't know what the Argos are going to be. They lost their starting quarterback. He's left for the uh, XFL. Mm-hmm. So you've got Toronto. Then you've got Montreal that I don't think should be anywhere near as good as Hamilton. Then you've got Ottawa. I don't think they should be anywhere near as good. You've got Edmonton that was atrocious last year. Back to Toronto, back to Ottawa, back to Montreal, back to Edmonton. By the time we get to the middle of August... With this schedule, even if they lose tomorrow night in Winnipeg, even if they lose one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, they could be eight and one easily. Easily. And the, the division could be over yes. before Labor Day. Yes. Now, that said, I'm looking at this thinking that is an eight and one start right there. Or, mm-hmm. or let's give it seven and two. There's one bad game in there. That should be a seven and two start. If they all of a sudden are four and five, or something like that. Now mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm going to have to rethink this whole thing. But I'm looking at this like this schedule is setting up for them to be in complete control of their fate before we're halfway through the season. Way before we're halfway through the season. Totally agree with you. That's why I keep mentioning the offensive line because Bo Levi has to stay upright. He has to stay healthy. He has to get rid of the football. Don't take licks. Don't get hit. Don't get hurt. And if he can stay healthy, then I agree with you. We could be uh, seven and one, seven and two, something like that, heading into Labor Day. And that, let's face it, Hamilton fans are loyal as can be, and we will be hooting and hollering and oski wee weeing uh, like crazy and loving it. It'll, uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 you rarely have seen Ticat fans boo their team off the field or be frustrated. I don't expect that. To, uh, as I say, I think that what you're going to see is the opposite. I think you're going to see this team running away with this division this year. Uh, whether it happens, well, it starts tomorrow night. Uh, 8.30 kickoff tomorrow night, followed, of course. Well, you can hear the game here on CHML pregame. Uh, before then, you can catch the fifth quarter with Rick Zamprin after the game, so you can call in in whatever state of sobriety you're in. <laughs> Regardless, <laughs> Rick gets them all. Uh, Steve will be watching. I'll be watching. Steve, thanks for doing this. Always appreciate and, it. Likewise, and I hope they make us look good by, by uh, winning, right? <laughs> well, you know what? As I say, it's Winnipeg. Tomorrow is going to yeah. be an interesting one, but after that, it uh, it looks like it is start running the table. smooth sailing after that, you <laughs> would think. Steve Foxcroft, thanks for you this. Okay, take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a former U.S. intelligence official who is now coming forward and saying there is evidence that not only has the United States government got its hands on fully intact non-human vehicles, but it also has found alien creatures. We, we are now stepping from, you know, the talk of UFOs as a, an X-Files kind of thing to presumably someone, if he's in formerly in the U S intelligence, what do we do with this? Is this entirely bonkers or what do we do with this? Well, there's only one person that I know of who I would turn to, to talk about this because you could go to anybody who is a little bit out there. Uh, but Chris Rutkowski is a guy who, uh, he's known as Canada's leading ufologist, uh, but a man who is not, that I've experienced anyway, a man who's not prone to just being Mulder or Scully from the X-Files. He's a little more thoughtful than that. He joins us now. Chris, thanks for doing this today. Great. Thanks for having me. 
Well, uh, I'm sure you saw this story when it popped up yesterday or the day before. You had to have. I'd be shocked if you weren't one of the first people to see it. What is your reaction when you hear someone say that we not only have spacecraft from somewhere else that's not human, but maybe we have aliens in the U.S. government's possession? Well, I mean, in social media, I would say Pixar, it didn't happen. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, show me, show me the evidence, show me the, the proof. Um, what's interesting is that this fellow uh, is definitely, you know, he has the credentials. He has the cred for sure that he was actually part of the, uh, the, the first UAP task force, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, which is now uh, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, Internet, uh, independent study team. There's you know a number of different words and and uh, terms for it now, but I mean he certainly you know has has the background, but some of what he's claiming is is a, you know definitely off the wall. Um, but he was an intelligence officer, and I suppose you know the old joke that military intelligence is a contradiction <laughs> in terms. So you know is, is something up or or is there you know uh, you know something behind this? And I guess the fact that, you know, he's claiming things that we've heard of before. I mean, a lot of people have claimed this uh, from previous uh, backgrounds. There have been some, uh, you know, people who weren't in the military anymore uh, saying that, yeah, you know, we know for sure that there's crash saucers and that the, the little green men are in pickle jars in somebody's basement and, the, and that type of thing. <laughs> we've heard that before. So, like, you know, what we're hearing is not new. I guess what's interesting is that this is somebody who should know better. And, you know, the question is, is he, uh, you know, spilling the beans on what's really going on or was he fed some bad information? It's a, it's a certainly a big question. Well, I, look, you and I today almost certainly would not be having this discussion if it was not someone who had, as you described, the, the, the position or the credibility that he would. Because if this was just someone who was living out in the sticks somewhere who claims that they were abducted by an alien and came back, um, you know what, we, we just would reduce that to nothing right off the bat, most of us. But it is someone who you would think we at least have to listen to because of the credentials that come after his name. You have been on this show before and you, I think, have made it reasonably clear what your position is in a lot of this. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're not the little green man UFO guy. You're someone who basically, as I understand it, has said, look, we don't know exactly. There are things that are unidentified phenomenon. It doesn't necessarily mean it's ET. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, I mean, uh, in Canada, for example, we have somewhere between 700 and 1,000 UFO or UAP reports every year, and many come from pilots and uh, air traffic control officers, and uh, some certainly come through military uh, avenues. So no, we, there are reports like that. Uh, the vast majority either have explanations or we don't have enough information to explain it one way or another. And there's a small percentage every year uh, that don't seem to have a, a simple explanation. And that's kind of where uh, the, uh, the the Pentagon stands. In fact, they, they actually have come out with a statement about this fellow, this whistleblower, saying that, you know, we, we don't have this kind of evidence. We simply don't have any proof that this is real. And uh, the fact that this guy is saying, well, no, we, we really do, and the Pentagon's lying, well, 
I suppose everyone kind of expects that the Pentagon lies about things, and that's that's you know the, the, the whole conspiracy theory, and that's why we have shows like the X Files to lean back on and things like that. So you know somebody's not telling the truth, or maybe is feeding us a line as whether we believe that it's United States Air Force or the Pentagon or this fellow who's come out uh, and spoken about it. Uh, it's a matter of opinion, but we don't have any proof. So until we get a little more proof, I'm I'm not about to, to uh, embrace the story completely, especially since we've heard this kind of thing before, and that sort of gives me a bit of a red flag. So uh, I, I need more information. I'm not going to dismiss it completely out of hand. Uh, I suppose the possibility is there, although he's said that there are intact flying saucers uh, that the U.S. has uh, has somewhere in a hangar, and and the, the bodies of the creatures who are flying them, and things like that. Well, you know, we usually hear stories about the crashed saucers, like Roswell. Why would there be an intact one suddenly, and how would they have obtained it? So there's a lot of questions about the story. Uh, you know, it's it's possible, I suppose, but we do live in a uh, James Cameron or a Steven Spielberg universe uh, where, you know, these things happen all the time. So it's it remains to be seen, mm. I think. Uh, my, my my skepticism is uh, like at about a ninety nine on this one, but nonetheless, that's. <laughs> but let me let me ask you this. Let, let us say, let's play along for a second. Let's say that the U.S. government truly found something that it didn't know what it was. It truly could not identify or break down what it was. Now. It, I suppose it could be something from another country. It could be something China made with a technology we've not seen or whatever. It's found something. We're going to play along with this. It's found something. What is the reason? What would be the upside to it constantly denying that it had such a thing? Well, the, you don't want the other uh, party to know. I mean, and, and actually, you know, there's some talk about uh, this fellow saying that, you know, the United States has reverse engineered um, you know, technology from these crash saucers. Well, there are reverse engineering programs in place within the, the Pentagon uh, with regard to, you know, a, a drone that uh, goes off course that was sent from Russia or China or something like that, and they, they examine it. And, and you know, the, the Chinese balloon that was shot down right. uh, off the coast of the United States, that is currently being reverse engineered right now. There actually is a uh, a division and, and program that's looking at it and trying to figure out what it was doing and how it functioned. So those types of things really exist. Now, was that misinterpreted somehow um, by this fellow or the people who gave him this information? Because he was very clear he didn't see any of this himself. This is really he's basically reiterating what he has been told or been given second and third hand. So the question is, where does that come from? Um, uh, and it is very possible that you know you can some of the things that we have we know that uh, that reverse engineering is certainly part of the way in which knowledge is assessed. Uh, whether this is the case here, we just simply don't know. Uh, would it be? I mean, I'm even though I said I'm 99 on the skepticism meter. I'm not 99 on the idea that they could have something that they hadn't seen before, as we described. That's a new technology that some other country has has come up with. I mean, are are you are, are you on board with that? That maybe they do find things every once in a while. We the states has created new technologies. Why could another country not do that? Um, yes, there, there's no question uh, that it's possible somebody's come up with a, a new. 
uh, I don't know, turbine or generator or, or, or something, maybe a shielding that uh, the United States doesn't have. And that's why there's such, such you know, interest in this. And there have been things falling, you know, into our laps, literally. Even in Canada, there was a, there's been a number of objects. Uh, there was a, a chunk of something that was found uh, in northern Alberta, or actually in the Northwest Territories, uh, uh, back in the 1960s now, I think, uh, that was considered to be a piece of a spacecraft that they couldn't quite identify. And they, I, they tried to figure out, you know, what country had sent it up, because it wasn't American and it wasn't somebody else's, so they had to figure it out. Um, and in fact, the U-2 uh, had to make a crash landing in Saskatchewan in 1960, uh, which you probably have never heard of, but it actually happened. So, you know, and then there's the case of uh, Cosmos 954, which was a Russian uh, spy satellite that had a nuclear reactor on board to power it, and it crashed into the Northwest Territories in the 70s, and it required a joint uh, operation between Canada and the United States to retrieve it, called Operation Morning Light, uh, because there were radioactive particles scattered throughout Northwest Territories, uh, that certainly caused a lot of concern because of danger to the population and the flora and fauna, um, and that was eventually retrieved. I think they got the, the largest piece was about the size of a washing machine, and the smallest piece was the size of a pinpoint. Hmm. Uh, and it was quite remarkable that this t- there was a program in place to retrieve and analyze what was found. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned this because I was going to ask about that. Many, many, many years ago, um, I happened to be in South Africa in Cape Town, I believe, when Skylab was supposed mm. to crash onto Cape Town. And we were all in the top of this hotel on a revolving restaurant with binoculars waiting for this, <laughs> whatever it was, to obliterate us. I don't know why we were on the t- highest possible point. It seems kind of stupid in retrospect. Should have been un- underground. But nonetheless, it landed, I think, in the middle of the ocean, if I recall correctly. But I do wonder about even things like this. Is it possible there are... M- thousands of satellites and other things flying around. Is it possible that some of these things could be a satellite that has just fallen out of orbit or crashed to Earth somehow? Yeah, absolutely. I think Skylab uh, crashed into Australia, if I'm not mistaken, but in 73, uh, with that time frame. 79, I think it was. 78 or 79, something in there. Okay, yeah. But but sure, yeah, it's certainly possible. In fact, uh, you know, people are probably familiar with seeing the Starlink satellites uh, going overhead that, that long string of pearls zipping over the sky and that uh, Elon Musk has been sending up there. And what people don't realize is that, uh, you know, a bunch of them have failed and actually have fallen back to Earth already. Mm. So, you know, that's a a commercial product with some proprietary things on them. So I'll bet people want to get their hands on some of that technology. Right. And we haven't, we don't see these every day. So to see something like that, if you came across it, somebody would say, well, I don't know what that is. It's, it fell out of the sky. And I mean, it, it, like you could almost start to put some of these things together. I don't know if you say the same thing, if you've got an intelligence official, surely they would know what they're talking about, but you can almost, I think, start putting some of these things together and say, well, yeah, something happened. It's just not quite ET coming to earth. Yeah. And, and to be fair though, you know, the, the possibility that, you know, aliens are, are, you know, out there is is there. Most astronomers agree that uh, there's probably intelligent life or advanced intelligent life out there. Maybe they have an interest in that. I just was uh, reading uh, some scientific papers uh, just earlier today about uh, searching for uh, alien sensors and satellites that might have been observing Earth for the past, you know, thousand years or so, and maybe they're in some polar orbit or 
uh, on the moon or, or orbiting the moon or something like that. These are, you know, scientific studies that are, you know, seriously considering the possibility. It is, uh, it is a fascinating one. Again, not because someone says that they've seen a UFO of some kind or an alien, uh, that we hear those stories with, I guess, some regularity. It's the fact that this person presumably, theoretically, is someone of reasonably high position and unless he's completely lost his mind, presumably of a position where this, we, we have to give it some kind of credibility. So there, there, there you go. There's, there's the story for the day. I don't know, Chris, I don't, I don't know what we're going to find because now I'm kind of thinking that even in the one in a million chance that he's right, and all that's the numbers I'll put it at, although I don't have any reason. If even if he's right, now I'm going all X-Files and saying, yeah, but somewhere, someone in the government has now moved this again, so we'll never find it. It's the, it's the lost Ark in the warehouse at the end of Raiders. Absolutely. And I think one of the other points to, to make about this fellow is that um, he's actually applied to the Inspector General of uh, the United States uh, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, for some protection, because he is a whistleblower going against what the Pentagon has to say. And the Inspector General of the United States has actually taken it on as a case. So he's under some legal obligation that if it's found that he's lying, he can probably go to prison. Chris Rutkowski, uh, look, we always appreciate having you on here. It's a, it's a sensible voice on a really interesting topic. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday after the show, I was over at a friend's place and um, happened to check my phone. I know, poor form. But, uh, and on it, it popped up that Commander Tom had passed away. And I, I, as I've said a few times, I grew up in Toronto uh, as a young kid. Channel 7 Eyewitness News with Tom Scholes, that's, uh, or Tom Joles, pardon me, that's Commander Tom, and Irv Weinstein and Rick Azar. They were as well, no, they were as familiar as any news team in Toronto. I'm not entirely sure why. I, I mean, maybe it had something to do with the limited number of channels. And as a kid, you, especially on weekends, turned to those channels and then the news came on. I don't know why, but somehow, and, and, and anyway, as, as the day's been going on and I said, I don't know if, I mean, was it as big a deal in Hamilton? And I'm getting all kinds of texts from people saying, yes, we all watched Commander Tom. We all watched Commander Tom. Well, it's another part of our childhood that, uh, has gone, although I guess the, the good news, if there can be good news here, is that it's a, a great reminder of that part of our life and that point that Commander Tom, that part that he played. Bill Briou is with Briou TV. He's a guy we like to talk to about all things television whenever this comes up. Bill, how are you tonight? I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? I, I'm well. Look, I'm, I'm sad about Commander Tom because like a lot of people, he, I think, represents for a lot of us, a part of our childhood. We all remember tuning in to watching Commander Tom. It was just, there weren't many channels, and he was the guy. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that uh, WKBW uh, news team, of you, you mentioned Weinstein, Azar, and uh, Joel's. Uh, you know, I think our, Irv Weinstein was the anchor for 34 years. It was always the number one. It was an ABC affiliate. And um, so, yeah, it was dominant in Toronto as well. It was impactful. Uh, even though we watched to see the latest fire in Tonawanda, you know, it didn't really relate to our, yeah. our towns, but, but still, um, there was something about those guys and, uh, Weinstein just had that voice of God anchor thing going on. And you had Joel's the weatherman who would be outside 
And he just had a very likable, easygoing presence on TV. And if you were a youngster like I was, um, you wanted to watch Commander Tom. Like yep. He was yep. just your guy. I think that, that that Channel 7 Eyewitness News, it, it where we know that it made a mark on people around here was in Bruce Almighty when Jim Carrey was in it, local guy, when yeah. he worked in that movie for Channel 7 in Buffalo. And I have to believe, I ha- when I watched that, the first thing I thought was, that can't be a coincidence. Of all the things they could have done, he had to have had a say that that's who he remembered watching as a kid. Yeah, I bet. And, uh, you know, because that channel had a lot of fun, innovative, you know, they had the Fright Night movies on Friday nights. And do you know where your children are? It's 11 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Yeah. You know, all these phrases that I remember 50, 60 years later, right? What is it about, though, those, I mean, there are a few um, people who, uh, you know, as kids, we uh, Commander Tom would be one, a little bit different for people like Mr. Dress Up or Mr. Rogers because they kind of did a different thing. Or Commander Tom was more of a, a traffic cop, really. I mean, going to other shows right. and stuff. But we all seem to have some youthful childhood person that we think so fondly of. It's, it's amazing how that has such an impact. It sticks like such Teflon, not Teflon, such Velcro into our brain. It like, it sticks so well. Well, um, you know, Tom Joles and Commander Tom, they weren't hampered by the need for educational television. (laughs) It was, it was literally just guys winging it uh, who were the, you know, the weatherman, the sportscaster, and every market had these, you know, when I was a, a little kid in Toronto, kiddo, the clown was a guy that just did, you know, was like Pee Wee's Playhouse only with a dollar 98 budget. But uncle Bobby came later and, you know, there was professors hideaway in these markets. There was all kinds of just local guys, big Al, I think in the Kitchener, it, it, you know, they were everywhere and they just, you know, it was just a way to um, push Popeye cartoons and old episodes of su- the original Superman and Three Stooges and then wrap them in this local show, which had a host. And Commander Tom was, for many of us, that guy. And now I've got Rocket Robin Hood going through my head. And also, uh, when you mentioned Uncle Bobby, that bimbo song that I'm now going to be humming for the rest of the night, and I don't know why. I don't know where that came out of my brain. I haven't thought of that one in about 45 let's years. Let's together, Scott. No, bimbo, let's not sing it together. <laughs> on the Uncle Bobby show. Kiss the missus. Yeah, that's exactly the one. Um, you know, but, but one last point on this one, though, is about three or four years ago, and I'm sure you'll remember this, the guy... Uh, Steve Burns was his name, who played Steve on Blue's Clues, yeah. came out and did a Twitter or a YouTube or something little. Just like, It was a very short video, and he had been the guy on Blue's Clues and then just sort of disappeared, and they, got re- they replaced him. But he did this video. He's 45 or 46 now. And social media was overrun by people talking about like how sad, like it's not sad, but just the, the, the emotion of seeing this guy talk about remembering that time and them remembering him. Like it's an, it's an amazing connection that children's TV entertainers have to their audience if they do it right. Well, it's the, your first connection. And no matter how old you are, you, there was somebody, you know, I'm older and, you know, so it's the friendly giant or uh, yep. even uh, the morning Captain Kangaroo in the States. The local guys were fascinating to me. And, Scott, I should mention there's an exhibit going on in Toronto right now. There's a place called the Myzeum, 
on Richmond Street, and their their whole exhibit is running through August is exactly what we're talking about. It's if you want to go and look at uh, puppets from Mr. Dress Up or really uh, yes, the Rocket Ship Seven, which was also on WKBW in the morning. Uh, they've got Kiddo, they've got Uncle Bobby. It's all there on exhibit right now until August at the Museum. It is, uh, yeah, and I mean, look, my kids, I know what my kids watch, and they would have the same thing. My daughter was big, comfy couch. I mean, that yes. that is, you know, that era, and, and by extension, I ended up watching a whole lot oh, of big, Barney. comfy. Yeah, um, you know, all that stuff for sure. Bill Barney, the dinosaur. Yes, was yes. All that. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's ch- change tack. Absolutely, I don't even know how to do a segue from one to the other of this next one. It's really hard, but let's change tack to another mm-hmm. thing on TV that I'm just fascinated by the last couple of days. CNN uh, appears to be imploding right now. They've got rid of their leadership because when the new guy came in, uh, is it Chris Light? Is that his name? Or yes. Okay, yeah. Chris Light comes in, takes over, and decides that he wants CNN to be less left-wing, less Democrat, a little more centrist, not so angry and yelly, but their ratings have plunged, their revenues have plunged. Uh, Fox has decided they are somehow going to move a little more to the center and be a little less right. Their ratings are plunging. What What is the message that we take from the fact that everybody says we don't want extreme ends of the political spectrum. We want them to be more objective. We don't want as much yelling. And then as soon as they do this, the whole thing collapses out from under them. Are we just totally hypocrites when it comes to this stuff? Well, you know, I mean, the reality is that Trump was the greatest thing to happen to news networks ever. And, you know, CNN, Fox, the ratings were never higher. Every single day there would be some crisis or something unbelievable happening. It never stopped. And it was all driven by Trump. And uh, when, you know, he was pushed off the, the stage uh, and they had to decide what to do next, um People were moved on to other things. You know, there's so much television now. You can stream fast channels and this and that, that uh, it wasn't that the guy who was the apprentice, they're driving it all for those networks. And I think that's part of it. The other thing is that what CNN came up with uh, in the last year was boring. (laughs) Yes. It just wasn't, you know, and you had a couple of guys who were kicked out for other reasons, you know, behavior, uh, you, you know, you had some crises there, and so they were down some of their marquee players and bigger names. Um, and then the people that they put in those places just didn't grab anybody. They just, you know, they tried to do a committee approach. CNN was at 10 o'clock having talking heads and a bunch of people, and it just didn't stick. But again, let me go back to my point. We always hear people say, I don't want all that angry. I don't want all that screaming. But it seems as though people vote with their feet and vote with their remote control. And it appears they really do want that stuff. It depends who's doing the screaming. I I, I just think it needs to be somebody compelling. And, uh, you know, it's. It's like, you know, when Jerry Springer died recently, and we talked about how there you go. You know, people were just fascinated by him, and his show ran for, what was it, 30 years or something? Uh, and that was just mayhem, just people breaking chairs and noses and you know, yelling at each other. So, yeah, I, there is something in all of us that we can't ignore a car accident by the side of the road, and uh, that's part of the appeal, I guess, in, in those kinds of shows. 
Just with the time we have left here, I, I read something just before we came on that um, I'd love to get your thought on this one. It's 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 sort of TV. I mean, he, he has done largely TV stuff. Brian Cranston, I don't know if you heard this story today. Brian yeah. Cranston has announced, I am retiring from acting. Now, not forever. I'm taking a break from acting. I'm going to support my wife. We're going to move to the south of France and drink wine and blah, 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 blah. What do you think the chances are? I mean, athletes have a terrible track record of saying they're going to retire when they're not quite ready yet or when they're just at the edge. I mean, they haven't yet been convinced that they are totally done and they have a terrible record of saying I'm retiring and coming back. What are the chances that Brian Cranston, who I think still would be one of the sought after actors, especially on TV, but anywhere, what are the chances you think that we don't see Brian Cranston for a year or two, or do you think this is going to totally fall apart? No, I, I think it's, it's, I believe him. If we have 60 seconds, I'll tell you this. Oh, story. yeah, for sure. We have more. Okay. Um, you know, I used to go down to the TCA, the Television Critics Press Tours, and uh, in California, and all the critics from across North America, and there's 200 of us, and we'd have the TCA Awards. And Brian Cranston would always be there because he'd be winning. You know, uh, he was tremendous on a couple of shows in comedy and drama. So he would come to the awards with his wife, and I met her very nice and all of us loved Cranston he was a great interview very sincere guy and we really applauded when he started winning because we thought Malcolm in the middle he was funny and now look what he's doing I can't believe it in Breaking Bad um, now he would come with his wife and I went to one of these press tours I brought a friend of mine from Toronto who's a teacher and he teaches religion and so this guy Pat Bullock was there and I introduced him to Mrs. Cranston the two of them went off and for an hour talked about religion and like she would be ignored at these dinners because we're all talking to her husband and other stars. So it was the first time she had a good time at the TCA Awards. A year later, I go back. I go down to the tour. I'm there like as usual. Pat's not down there this time. Cranston comes up to me and goes, where's your friend? And I said, oh, no, Pat's not a critic. He was just visiting that time. He was so disappointed <laughs> because he had to just talk to us. You know, and his wife was was not going to be entertained. So I do think his family comes first, and I do think that he wants to do something other than all these great shows he's making. And I really believe, yeah, you will see him step aside for a year, at least. Uh, you know, and the interesting thing that he says, and I, this is where I find it really challenging to believe, and I, you may be well right, you may well be right. He says, I will not even look at scripts while I'm away. And that, to me, is the part that I find almost hard to believe that a guy like him with the opportunities that he, and there's others like him would say, I'm going to have the discipline to not even consider roles. It's not that I'm not going to do it. I'm not even going to look at them. That that's, that's going to be an amazing feat if he can do that. Yeah. But you know, I guess if you are, you know, nearing 70, you've done this, he's done it forever and he's done plays and little things that flopped. And, you know, he worked hard for many years before he became really Brian Cranston. And, uh, yeah. Then he won. He doesn't need the money, you know, like, so, uh, no, I, I, I think that he's uh, sincere and, uh, why not uh, travel a bit and do something like that? Ah, heck who would, who of us wouldn't, you know, I, I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and you're right. It's, it's an irony that if you, if you want to work, you, if you don't have success, you want desperately to work. And then if you've had yeah. success, you'd say, well, we don't have to, but then I've worked so hard to not work, that it just, yeah, we'll see. It's amazing where he pops up, though. You're right. It's amazing. I was watching, talking about this the other day, um, I, on the anniversary of D-Day, I was watching Saving Private Ryan, and all of a sudden up pops Brian Cranston. I forgot that he was in that movie. 
Well, uh, he's in Seinfeld. You know, Sein- of course, the, the anti-dentite. Yeah, and I first met him in Toronto. He was on the set of a Christmas movie that no one's ever heard of again. And he couldn't have been nicer and more fun. And, uh, you know, I just think, too, that if you've done Breaking Bad, what other mountain is there to climb? You've already been on one of the greatest TV shows ever, starring, and you won, like, five Emmys for it. You know, what the heck? I think that's pretty good. That is a very valid point, yeah. that uh, Once you've done that, you're absolutely right. Uh, That is Bill Briou. You can find him at Briou. Dot .tv if you want to read his stuff, which you should. It's fantastic always. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Anytime. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.